Break the Chains of Human Trafficking, an awareness podcast presented by Mike Seibert Radio in conjunction with Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking. It will take a community effort to eliminate human trafficking in our community. We invite you to join us. My name is Mike, I am your host, and thank you for downloading and sharing this podcast. Want to get involved? Check out these upcoming community events for the month of April. On Sunday, April 14th, the King County Library in Federal Way is hosting a screening of the film The Price of Sex, which is about sex trafficking in Eastern Europe. Claudia Lawrence will lead a community discussion after the film, in partnership with Meaningful Movies Project, sponsored by the Friends of the Federal Way Libraries. Second Sunday of every month from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Federal Way Library. And then, on Tuesday, April 23rd, it's the FedCap Monthly Meeting with a presentation on survivorship and identity by Judy Johnson of Pathways to Healing. Identity is a complex issue, individually, as a group, and as a culture. It's often difficult for survivors and victims to find a space for their own identity that includes their lived experience. This will be a discussion that unpacks some of the layers that can be involved in that struggle. Judy invites survivors, service providers, and community members to join this discussion. Again, that's going to be Tuesday, April 23rd, 7 to 8.30 p.m. at the Courtyard by Marriott in Federal Way. And also happening that day, it's the Black Bear Diner Benefit hosted by Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking. Help break the chains of human trafficking in our community by enjoying a delicious meal at the Black Bear Diner on April 23rd. In addition to helping raise awareness to this issue in our community, FedCat representatives will be at the Black Bear Diner to provide information and to register those interested in the 7th Annual Break the Chains 5K Awareness Walk happening on May 18th. Join the Black Bear Diner 5K team again. That's Tuesday, April 23rd. 15% of the day's proceeds will benefit the Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking. On Tuesday, April 30th, Claudia Lawrence presents a seminar on sex trafficking within indigenous communities hosted by PLU in Tacoma. Join us in learning about the sex trafficking of missing and murdered indigenous women and of other missing natives, men and gender-fluid and two-spirit folks. Featuring special guest speaker Claudia Lawrence, Community Mobilization Director for Seattle Against Slavery and FedCat. I'll have details about all of these upcoming events in the show notes, but for more information, follow Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking on Facebook and visit their website, fwcat.org. Coming up next, it's my conversation with the Executive Director of Seattle Against Slavery, Robert Beiser. Seattle Against Slavery, or SAS, mobilizes our community in the fight against labor and sex trafficking through education, advocacy, and collaboration with local and national partners. We envision a community where no one is exploited for labor or sex. And joining me now to explain their mission further, here's Robert Beiser. I'm Robert Beiser, Executive Director of Seattle Against Slavery and the Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking. 
And we focus on local human trafficking that takes place in greater King County area. Um, we've been doing this work for about 10 years. And essentially, the reason that we exist is to create a community response to human trafficking so that no one in our community will be exploited in labor trafficking or sex trafficking. Now, my my exposure to SAS, uh, Seattle Against Slavery, comes from uh, my association with uh, with FedCAP, Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking. It's my understanding that those organizations have become merged. Yep. And uh, I, I was wondering if maybe you could um, uh, expand on that a little bit. Sure. So both organizations have a, a great track record of engaging this issue, educating about it in their communities. And uh, a little over a year ago, um, beginning of 2018 was when it, it became a bit more formal. Uh, we started having conversations between Seattle Against Slavery and the Federal Aid Coalition Against Trafficking about how we could work together to do a better job of community mobilization and engaging folks around the issue of trafficking in central and south King County. So Seattle and Slavery had, had grown and was pretty successful in engaging partners, getting people connected with services, doing prevention work in North King County and Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking without ever even having any staff was doing a great job in the Federal Way area. But we really saw an opportunity if we came together uh, for creating more of a countywide response, connections, partnerships. And so um, at the beginning of 2018, we decided to merge. Um, we've since then had to say Seattle Against Slavery and the Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking a lot. You know, coming up with a new name or it's much easier to write when you just do the acronyms and it's yes. SAS slash FWCAT. Um, but at some point, we'll probably come up with a, a new name that encompasses both. Uh, but but the core mission of both organizations is the same, uh, addressing the trafficking that we see in our own communities, finding ways to prevent it, and finding ways to help people who might be in a trafficking situation get identified, get offered and connected with resources, and give them a stable landing place so that they can move on with their lives. Uh, a couple places I would like to go from there. One, the difficulty of human trafficking is something that I'm even a year later still relatively new to. And I'm still shocked by how prevalent it is in our communities. Like uh, prior to uh, becoming associated with, uh, with FedCat, um, it, it, was, it was just what I saw in the movies. True. You know, um, and I think there's a lot of stigmatization and a lot of misinformation and maybe some uh, poor perception. Um, so before um, I ask more specifically about how, um, you know, how folks can identify whether they need services or need to connect with uh, SAS or FedCat, um, I was wondering if you could uh, uh, spend a little bit of time talking about some of those misconceptions um, uh, with regards to um, you know uh, uh, human trafficking, uh, sex trafficking, labor trafficking, etc. Yeah, happy to. Uh, I think one of the challenging parts of it uh, of 
defining trafficking and people looking at it going on in their communities is that it's a relatively new concept. So the law that defined human trafficking in the United States only came around in the year 2000. So every other kind of crime that you can think of, I guess with the exception of like some new internet cybercrime things, right? we've had a concept for what it means for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you steal something from somebody, if you, you know, hit somebody, you, you get the, the basic concept. Human trafficking is actually just a way to describe a set of circumstances that have been going on for a long time. So if I asked someone, hey, do you think that at some point in the past, in the history of the United States or the world, um, people have ever been threatened with violence if they didn't have to work? Like say there's you know, an immigrant person without the right type of documentation that someone would get them to work and then say, hey, I'm not gonna pay you the legal amount and if you tell anybody, I'll you know, report you to the police or send you to you know, be deported. People would be like, yeah, sure, that's a thing that's gone on. You know, that, that's a reality of a thing that happens. Or um, do you think that there was ever a time that there was someone in prostitution and if they didn't give money to the person who was overseeing their prostitution, that that person would be violent towards them or use physical violence to get them to sell sex? And everybody would be like, yeah, that's basically the concept behind a, a pimp and that's existed and, you know, we've, through the 70s, had lots of movies about it even. But, sure, but, sure. But these concepts of getting someone to do uh, a type of work or be involved in commercial sex by using some point of leverage to deny them their free will, um, whether that leverage is violence, whether that leverage is some type of threat, or even like tricking them into doing something, you know, promising them one thing and then switching around and doing another thing. We have little pieces of law here and there about fraud and assault and harassment. This is saying, okay, you use all of those bad things that we've had in law before, to get someone to make you money or to get someone to give you something of value. That's how human trafficking got defined. When they use the term trafficking, it became very confusing for people because people thought drug trafficking, which would be drug smuggling. Mm -hmm. Um, They thought traffic like cars and they have (laughs) to move. Um, One of the first uh, State Department special ambassadors to trafficking, when he was appointed for that, he was, you know, sort of a a career... um, like a government official who'd worked on lots of different types of things. He said that he was being asked by some of the folks um, who were elected officials in Congress, um, what do you know about transportation and cars and, and things like that? And he was like, nothing. Why? And they're like, well, because they made you the special ambassador to trafficking. So what, what do you know about traffic? And he was like, no, this is clearly confusing for folks um, because the type of work that he did was protecting people's basic human rights. So the way that trafficking gets presented a lot of times, and I think the way people pick up on it, is it's presented in what will be the most provocative kind of newsworthy versions of the story, because Mm -hmm. that's how the news picks what's on the news. Mm -hmm. And the same if you're like going to put a thing in movies or you're going to put a thing in um, television, you pick like outrageous attention getting things. And so that's the presentations that you see. They're not necessarily accurate. They're, they're outrageous. And one of the ways that Seattle and slavery came into being was that survivors here locally in Seattle and King County and the service providers who were working with them had the sense that people were getting a false idea about what trafficking was like. Mm-hmm. And that was particularly problematic when people wanted to get help and someone would say to them, well, you're not like this thing that I saw on TV. So 
you're not a trafficking victim. Or when they said there's a person doing a, a bad thing, a trafficker, and mm-hmm. can you go after them? And folks in the community were like, well, we think that this thing that we saw that's like the movie Taken, that's what a trafficking problem is. Not, right. you know, there's a family member who's exploiting someone who's in their family, or mm-hmm. there's a, a person who's filed false paperwork to bring someone from another country here with a promise of a job, and now they're forcing them into a role that they don't get paid or they're you know being threatened with violence and so what the the survivor community the service provider community wanted us to do was to take their real lived stories the Mm -hmm. the real examples of trafficking out there and paint an accurate picture and i think in some ways we've done a good job Mm -hmm. we certainly can't get you know media to not tell stories the way that they, right. that they, sure, they find sure. are, are telling stories. And sometimes people will tell a story, you know, and we share it on, you know, Facebook or Instagram or things like that. And we think it's an incredibly important story to tell. And people are like, oh, there's a lot of details and like complexity and nuance to this. Can't it just be like, there's a bad guy and they're hurting like a, a person that we think is like really innocent. And so we just, and then someone comes in and rescues them. And we're like, hmm, that's not what most of the trafficking stuff looks like. Yeah. But I think, you know, to, to your credit, saying this is complex, there's lots of different versions of this, there's lots of different nuance, that's how doing anti-trafficking work goes mm-hmm. in the same way that you've seen doing work against domestic violence and doing work right. against sexual assault and sexual harassment. It evolves over time. People mm-hmm. pick up on complexities and, and emerging ideas and stories that might have been hidden before. And then when they do and those stories come to light, people figure out better ways to keep people safe. And that's ultimately why we want to paint an accurate picture of trafficking, because we want people safe from exploitation. Let's move into uh, awareness and prevention, um, because that that's one of one of the huge missions of uh, SAS and FedCat. Uh, could you elaborate on that some? So I think to what we were just talking mm-hmm. about knowing what trafficking looks like, what what trafficking really looks like directly from the survivors who are experiencing it, the service providers who are helping them. Uh, having that type of awareness out there really helps with the response. When someone sees a thing in their community that looks like a person is living in fear, you know, is at a job where some, uh, an employer is threatening them, um, is in a situation where it seems like they're surviving in prostitution and someone else is, is benefiting or getting the money. Understanding that as human trafficking gives us a, a way to have community members, you know, report that, mm-hmm. have community members reach out if the situation is safe or right, um, have community members advocate to, you know, their, their mayor, their city council people to do the things that are necessary, you know, expand services, address it with law enforcement. Um, and so that awareness piece of here's what's happening in the community, whether you've been looking at it in the past or not, it's it's a real thing that mm-hmm. exists. And, you know, if we care about our community, whether it's we care about ourselves and we don't want to have a community where this happens, or we care about the people who are being harmed and want to help them, you have to look at what the real thing is if you're going to try to address it. So that's why awareness is critical. Mm-hmm. It's like going to the doctor doesn't isn't the thing that makes you sick. Right. You find out about the things that might be going on with you so you can fix them. Mm-hmm. Similarly with trafficking, it takes looking at hard problems to try to address it, but we have to get an accurate assessment of what's going on for people to try to change this problem. Yeah, you know, and I've I've heard folks talk a lot about root cause. 
And with an issue as complex as as trafficking is, you know, the larger umbrella of of trafficking. Um, with that, though, um, editorially speaking, uh, uh, what root causes do you think could be addressed um, uh, from that perspective? So when folks are doing violence prevention, uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can approach it that are not like one or the other. So decreasing people's vulnerabilities is certainly a good way mm -hmm. to try to address an issue where violence is going to be happening. Um, so for everybody who's been outside of, you know, a government building like your city hall or federal building or something like that, you'll see barriers that are up so that someone can't drive a car into the building and hurt people. Sure. It's a good thing. If you've got basic practical steps that can yeah. make everything a little bit safer, that's great. But you don't want to have a situation where every person who's walking into a city hall has to get a significant amount of training for what happens if a car is going to drive in and how they can respond to it and being on the lookout, because that isn't actually going to prevent the person with the car driving into the building. Mm -hmm. um, and so what folks do in addition to addressing some of the, the vulnerabilities that are related to trafficking is looking at the people who might be involved in exploiting other folks. So that's the people who own or run businesses, the people who might subcontract to business owners to keep those people safe. In the area of prostitution, that's the people who might become or are pimps or traffickers, the people who work with those folks, and the sex buyers who are buying sex uh, from traffickers and are involved in the exploiting of sex trafficking victims. So we do a lot of work in the root cause area. So if you're thinking about the vulnerabilities that we see most trafficking victims um, or many trafficking victims display. You see poverty is a key driver of people who are in risky situations and are being manipulated or exploited by other folks. You see um, trafficking happening disproportionately along uh, minority racial lines. So it's less likely to happen to someone who is the sort of majority power holding group, not mm -hmm. just in the States, but you know, it functions that way in lots of countries sure, around sure. the world. Um, similarly, if you're a person who isn't kind of rooted in the community and has connections or safety networks because maybe you're an immigrant into that community or maybe you're not part of the you know, more popular religious group who's in that community or language group who's in that community, it's just harder for you to stabilize yourself. And it's not that those root causes actually lead to trafficking. What they represent is targeting for traffickers. So if someone is looking to exploit another person, mm -hmm. they're gonna use those lines of vulnerability to try to identify someone to exploit. But that trafficker is gonna keep looking. If, if there's profit to be made there, right. you can try to shore up vulnerability everywhere you can. And if there's money to be made by someone mm -hmm. exploiting a person in prostitution or for a business, they're gonna just try a slightly less vulnerable person. And that's one of the reasons why in our prevention efforts, we also look upstream at the people who are doing the harm. So mm -hmm. it's much easier to try to change people's social ideas about, for example, buying traffic sex mm -hmm. than it is to fundamentally transform poverty. So right. that, yeah, it, it, having those conversations is, is a little bit um, you know, challenging to, mm -hmm. to talk about sex buying and the fact that sex trafficking wouldn't happen if people weren't buying traffic sex. Right. Um, but thinking about 
trying to make it so that, you know, no one's coming out of unstable homes as runaway and homeless youth. No one's, you know, having bad foster care experiences. Mm -hmm. No one's experiencing, you know, prior abuse in the home. These are all factors that are connected to um, vulnerabilities for sex trafficking later. Uh, Those are much more challenging to transform than we could just, like many other countries in the world, have less men who think it's okay to buy sex. And then we have much less risk than anybody's going to be trafficked for sex. Right. Because there's less money in it for traffickers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's less volume of people who, are, you know, there's a roll of the dice that someone might be trafficked. And so we work on both shoring up the, the systems that can help people be less vulnerable and looking towards the people who we, we call them like the vectors, the places where violence are coming from, mm-hmm. so that we can try to disrupt those people as well. Um, and ultimately, we see the combination of those um, as both being root cause prevention and working on them together. Mm-hmm. We've seen you know better outcomes and less people looking to exploit folks in our community. Uh, one of the other things I, I want to chat about is you know uh, back to perception. Um, I think, and misconceptions is um, oftentimes people view um, uh, survivors of a a trafficking situation um, as somebody that's been uh, rescued, like, again, keeping with like that, that highly stylized, fictionalized mentality, you know, Liam Neeson busts in the door at the end of the movie, takes out the bad guys and, and, and the rescue occurs and the real work is far more complicated than that. So um, I was wondering if you could talk about uh, specifically about services and some of the uh, challenges on that. Yeah, it's a complicated landscape for someone who's getting out of a trafficking situation. Um, You know, when we're thinking about the vulnerabilities that are being exploited by a trafficker, those don't just end because you've removed that one trafficking situation and the harm that has been caused to someone while they're in a trafficking situation actually creates an additional vulnerability. So, you know, the some of the research around people coming out of prostitution uh, show that the rates of PTSD that they're experiencing are roughly double that of combat veterans, not even just wow. veterans broadly, but people who have actually been in live combat don't experience the kind of like, um, you know, night terrors and flooding and inability to feel safe in you know public places that someone who has spent time in prostitution have and so when you think about okay you might have had a person who was vulnerable before they were trafficked and now they're coming out of it with all this additional stuff that's a challenge you can't just go and be like okay well i've taken you from this bad person's house and now i've put you you know in a police station and so you're good now and the rest of your life will be stable even if you might have been homeless before or even if you might have been you know economically unstable before any of this stuff happened even if you might have needed counseling or you might have you know to get through your trafficking situation started using alcohol or drugs to deal with the trauma that you're experiencing you're gonna need a lot of support and it's gonna have to be a situation that that survivor feels is safe for them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the reasons why we normally don't use like the rescue terminology. Right, um, right. You know, it's similar to someone leaving a domestic violence situation. Mm-hmm. They have to feel like they have the the stable situation and the right resources in place to get out. Otherwise, they're 
just going to, you know, fall prey to that person abusing them again. It's, I mean, to the point that we have like restraining orders, because even if people leave, there's still right. danger that's available. And we've done some advocacy work around restraining orders related to trafficking survivors. Um, but one of the other things that's a key part that I think people don't know about or, or think about is traffickers aren't just threatening or violent to their victims. They're also threatening and violent to the loved ones of those victims. Right. And so it's fairly common to hear from a survivor, I could have survived on my own if I left, but this person knew where my family was, knew where my kids were. They're a dangerous person who's connected to other dangerous people. So even if I put them in jail, I don't know that my, you know, my mom or my grandma is going to be safe. And so I needed to feel confident about that before I could get out. And so in thinking about if you're going to go and rescue someone and take them out of that situation, uh, it's funny, you know, mentioning Taken. Yeah. That was exactly what happened in Taken. It's like, oh, right. you you killed a bad guy. Guess what? Bad guy had a bunch of other bad guy friends, and then they killed a bunch of people in your life. If you had thought that through maybe a little bit, you know, they're making sequels to a movie, so they're not thinking about it in, in real world practicality. Sure. But, but it is illustrative that you can very easily conceive of, oh, if you do something that affects the money of someone who's a mm -hmm. criminal and that person is willing to be violent, they will be violent to the people that mm -hmm. you care about in order to keep that money flow going. And so survivors are incredibly brave and they've developed resilience and they're super resourceful mm -hmm. uh, in getting out of their trafficking situations or even maintaining their own safety when they're in those trafficking situations. Right. But it's a responsibility of us in the community to make that transition as mm -hmm. easy, as direct, as supportive as possible, and you know, come together with as many services as that person needs to feel stable and mm -hmm. feel safe and feel like their loved ones are safe. And sometimes we just can't. Like it's it's a thing that we can't right. one hundred percent accomplish. And so the community just does the the best that they can, and we always try to to do more. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate. Uh, uh, sometimes it reminds me not all that dissimilar to drug treatment situations. You know, it's like you can do all you can do. And at the end, sometimes, uh, you know, it's it's up to a person's own choice. And, and I, I think, you know, a good related piece for folks who are, you know, doing substance abuse counseling or recovery is... Um, there's been a bunch of research with those folks looking, again, upstream at the experiences that those folks had early on in their life. Mm -hmm. And what you find is, yes, there are genetic factors that sometimes might make someone more likely to have addiction in their life. But one of the other very predictive factors is the trauma that people are experiencing. Mm -hmm. And that you can take a group of people and you're like, wow, you know, substance abuse counseling seems to be working better with this group than the other group. And you ask those folks what they're experiences were early on in life. And what you find is the higher the level of trauma that people have experienced, the harder it is for them to make a change in their life away from substances. Mm -hmm. And the more effective um, other life supports, like getting people connected with a community, getting people connected with their family and a stable job can be to get people out of uh, you know a substance abuse situation because as much as it is people's choice, if you don't have the right type of supports in place, it's a much you know, more challenging choice. And you know, like with trafficking, you're right back around to that place of vulnerability where you started mm -hmm. that you know, for right. some folks, 
drugs come in and for other folks, you know, traffickers and, and people looking to exploit come in. And so as much as possible, if we can do the work to, to give people the safety and security, mm-hmm. um, the less likely it is that the, the bad effects are going to happen to them. And, you know, in parallel, both trafficking and, and substance abuse, right. the better it is for the community overall, because you want, you know, active members of that community contributing, which most of these folks can. Let's talk about uh, community outreach and how folks individually or as groups uh, can become involved. Sure. So Seattle Gun Slavery and and FedCat both started as all volunteer organizations. And so we wouldn't say like, you can get involved by just starting your own organization. Um, (laughs) But but it was, you know, people coming together and saying, what can we learn from what survivors and service providers and government and, and law enforcement need? And what's the role that the community can play on a basic level? People learning about uh, what the experiences of their local trafficking survivors are plays a huge role. Mm-hmm. And I think it sparks a lot of ideas of, oh, what could I do in this way? So. For example, there's a bunch of recent data coming out uh, in King County around youth sex trafficking that points to um, foster care involvement as oh. a, a pretty significant um, risk factor for being trafficked later. Um, that, that just It's a very high rate, like very disproportionately high rate of youth sex trafficking survivors who get connected with services. When you look back in their early life, they were state dependent at some point. It's not shocking given what we were talking about before with the you know the harm and the trauma and the vulnerabilities yeah, they yeah. sort of align with people having bad home mm-hmm. lives or challenging home life experiences but if we look at ways that people could get involved with supporting foster youth in their community again if you can have like a really positive foster youth experience whether that's a person opening up their home and providing a great setting there or doing things to prop up you know um, like runaway homeless youth or foster youth in their community it's going to be much less likely that someone's going to be able to exploit those youth. And so taking a less reactive approach and a more proactive approach, Mm -hmm. I think that that's an exciting thing that we've been seeing that you have to learn about the issue to understand what the connection is. But then once you understand the connection, you can, you know, volunteer, you know, to be a mentor to foster youth or, you know, do stuff that helps support foster youth organizations. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're really doing anti-trafficking work. Yeah. It's spreading awareness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and similarly, uh, you know, when we're talking about labor trafficking that goes on in King County, mm-hmm. a lot of folks are unaware that there even is this possibility that someone might be exploited in work. But we've had stories of, um, you know, youth who are being held out of school to, you know, work in factories, work in mm-hmm. coffee shops, um, you know, work as a, a domestic servant. So cleaning people's house, taking care of their kids. And so the more that people can get educated about that and then providing information to businesses in in their Mm -hmm. communities, Um, you know, whether that's a brochure on here's a thing to look for when you're subcontracting or, you know, here's a sort of know your rights thing for employees so that they can support each other as as a community of people who are workers, that type of going around, handing out posters, handing out brochures really makes an impact. And what we've seen is, um, you know, the, the county itself, King County and the Port of Seattle and the city of Seattle um, have all done a bunch of work around creating materials and putting up posters and signs as organizations. Mm-hmm. And people as individuals can do the same thing. Like if you work someplace, 
you can put up a poster you, you can have brochures available if you know people everyone either works at a place or knows someone who works at a place um you can connect uh those folks with the type of materials that even if you think like okay i run you know uh, a barbershop and mm-hmm. i know the three people who work there and we're good and we're not at risk having that type of information there for every person who might come in or to share with the other people sure. that you know it can make a real difference so that's those are pretty easy ways to get involved mm-hmm. as you go up the chain you can help put on those events yourself you can help you know like take leadership roles in setting the strategy for what events should we have and where should we have them and all those type of volunteer opportunities are available with uh sas and fedcap since we're on that topic, could um, uh, could you talk about some of the uh, resources that are available for folks? Like I know the uh, uh, SAS website is is uh, uh, pretty robust in terms of like the amount of information that's there. Yeah, we try not to overwhelm people on the website, and I don't know that we succeed because there's so much. But people <laughs> people ask for a lot of different things. So if people go to SeattleAgainstSlavery.org or FWCAT.org, that's the the FedCat website, you'll see there's printable resources. There's mm-hmm. you know book recommendations, movie recommendations. There's a, a calendar of events. Um, you know, there's a volunteer section if you want to email and it'll ask you a bunch of questions about the type of stuff that you Mm -hmm. want to do and where you are. Um, So so there's a lot that's there. Uh, You know, one of the other simple things is if you follow um, FedCat or SAS on Facebook, uh, that's a really easy way to just sort of stay in the know. Things will literally come up in your newsfeed. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're seeing about kids who, you know, um, had birthdays and you see pictures of that yeah. not from our site um, <laughs> or, or like you know people who had graduations and then sure. you also see like there's an event coming up in the community that's like right the 5k uh, mm-hmm. that's coming up in may um it's, it's that's a sort of low barrier way that the information can, can just come to you mm-hmm. and you know we try to share stories that are again not provocative not sensational right. but really highlight what's going on and, and sort of the lens that we take on why the things are happening the way they're happening mm-hmm. um and people you know have discourse it's social media you know people share the, share their ideas and views and you know everybody doesn't always agree with each other uh but i think overall people are just informed and they get right. a, a good sense of both some of the challenging things that are going on in the community but mm-hmm. also the really inspiring things that service providers and survivors and organizations like ours are doing to try to address it uh, Robert, obviously, this uh, uh, you're very passionate about this topic. Um, could you talk about what about this work calls to you? Why 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 you're why you're doing what you're doing? Sure. So there there are a couple of different reasons that I work on trafficking. Um, trying to think of what order. So I'll go <laughs> I'll go high level and then go to more specific ones. Sure. Um, so once upon a time. I worked in the tech sector and I was like building things and figuring things out and you know people pay quite a bit to get folks to to do that in the technology world Um, and what I found was that it was challenging and intellectually interesting and I was interacting with lots of cool people but at the end of the day it really felt kind of like I was doing crossword puzzles or sudoku or something like that for money which is like you know you get a really good crossword clue and you feel great about it mm-hmm. but if you were doing it for like 15 or 20 years like are you gonna like 
feel like right like oh i was at like a mid-level crossword completer um so for me it wasn't and uh i decided that i was going to work more in the social change space more in something that i feel like would make me feel a sense of esteem and accomplishment in my community not just sort of like because i got paid to to do a job that people found valuable um and so in doing that i had the opportunity to interact with some labor trafficking survivors and some sex trafficking survivors and what I realized, it, it was uh, in an international context. So I was, I was doing some, some work abroad and, and trying to do social change work and learning. And I realized that I didn't know anything about how to really help people in faraway countries with where they speak languages that I don't speak. And it was kind of silly to think that I was going to be the right person to try to address that. But that I knew that similar types of things were going on here in the community at home. So... When I got back to the States, I started looking for an organization where I could volunteer and see if I could be helpful in some way and Seattle Against Slavery existed. And so I started volunteering and then I volunteered for like three years and then the board said, you volunteer a lot. Yeah. And so would you want to do this as your job? And I was like, do you have you know money to pay a salary that I didn't know about? And they're like, oh, no, no, that would be part of your job. You would also have to raise funds for your salary. And I'm like, wow. That sounds great. So there's there's no stability and, and no uh, real clear path, but a lot of flexibility and I get to do something that feels tremendous when it's successful. So I decided to do it and it, it stuck because I've been uh, as I've been the executive director for about uh, six years now. Wow. Yeah. So volunteering for three years, uh, doing it for my job for about six years. But I think one of the reasons that I wanted to do this for my job was, as I said, I was working in the social change space. And when you're working on issues like homelessness or hunger, um, working on like youth violence, um, trying to do like racial justice work, mm-hmm. uh, or um, you know, helping people who are experiencing discrimination based on their gender or their sexual orientation, big wins are kind of hard to come by. They come occasionally. Uh, right. But a lot of the time it's just, oh man, there's so much bad stuff. And you try to take like these tiny little wins here and there. And what I found was in doing anti-trafficking work, because it's such a new definition of the problem and because mm-hmm. people are approaching it in such different ways, there are really big wins that are kind of clear cut mm-hmm. that you can have all the time. So um, for example, if you know that, okay, we've only been able to get... 25 or 30 people into stable housing out of a trafficking situation this year and we have 100 folks who have requested that if the next year you can be like okay we had 100 now we've got 60 people you know or 70 people you can literally double it in the the next year that doesn't exist where you know you go from like okay we've got 6,000 homeless people in King County. And then the next year you're like, okay, now it's down to 3,000. And now the next year it's down to 1,500. But in in the trafficking space, there are really these big wins, at least in in helping serve the the folks who need support. Um, Mm -hmm. I think similarly, a great example of that was we noticed pretty early on that there's this conflict between Washington state laws on trafficking and prostitution when it comes to juveniles. Mm -hmm. So someone who is under 18, uh, they... If they are involved in prostitution or commercial sex, uh, they are considered a trafficking victim, um, even if there's no clear trafficker defined, so no one has to be charged with the crime. So they're a trafficking victim. Also, 
if there's a person who's under 18, like 15, 16 years old, mm -hmm. and they're involved in commercial sex, uh, they can be arrested for juvenile prostitution. So they're both committing the crime and they're the victim of the crime they're committing, um, which seems weird. And so in looking, and, and the third piece about this that sort of makes the definition of weird is say that you have a 15 year old and a 30 year old has sex with that 15 year old, mm -hmm. um, that's child sexual abuse. The 15 year old's clearly a victim. The 30 year old is sexually abusing the, the 15 year old. Mm -hmm. Now, if the 30 year old um, gives $20 to the 15 year old, now the 15 year old is a criminal because they benefited financially from being abused. It's a real weird part mm -hmm. of the law. And so we looked at like, okay, can we radically change these laws? And that might be kind of a big change. Um, and instead what we did was we worked with prosecutors and law enforcement and judges in King County to say, you've been arresting people who are underage in prostitution for a while doesn't seem to be working, like they said, doesn't seem to be working or right. helpful. If we offered a lot more services and easy access to getting an advocate out there, um, mm -hmm. and when I say we, I mean like in the anti-trafficking community, sure. would you take that option instead of having to arrest folks? And they were like, sure, but we're suspicious that that'll actually be available. And we're like, okay, we'll prove it, that you have this other option. But if we give the other op option, would you look at not uh, arresting and charging those those kids with juvenile prostitution, those trafficking victims who are kids. And in 2009, once the elegant slavery started, it was 50 or 60 youth being charged every year. So you're thinking 150 to 200 youth being arrested. Mm -hmm. And by the time that we got to 2015, the number of youth charged for juvenile prostitution in King County was zero, mm -hmm. which is kind of an incredible thing. It was the right goal for us yeah, to have. Yeah, of course. But if you had that goal in another area that wasn't trafficking, mm -hmm. it might seem impossible to accomplish. Right. In the trafficking space, we actually got there in 2016, 2017, 2018. We've been able to maintain that because no one wants to be arresting teenagers in prostitution. Right. They want to be getting them help and putting them in a position where it's not, they're not going to be exploited again in the future. And so we just see that every day with, mm -hmm. with anti-trafficking stuff, that there are these real solutions that are sort of straightforward, like, hey, if we do this, will this help people out? And the result has been that once we started getting those youth referred instead of getting arrested, youth started coming forward a lot more. You started trusting the service providers a lot right, more. Right. And it became this sort of benevolent cycle where mm -hmm. it's much easier for youth to get out of trafficking now because more people are looking for it. Law enforcement sees them as victims and not criminals, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, pimps and traffickers can't use the threat of arrest in the same way because it's just not a valid threat because mm -hmm. police are just taking them to services, which doesn't seem as scary. You know, if a pimp's like, if you cross me, you'll get sent to services. Great. Yeah. That, that's exactly what we're looking for. And so, you know, that, that type of opportunity, um, to really make an impact in people's lives feels great. Um, on a more personal level, and I, I shared this with someone a couple of weeks ago and I mm. realized the connection is really strong. Growing up for me, I had some issues of experiencing violence myself. Um, so sometimes when I characterize it as bullying, I guess it doesn't seem like as severe as that, but in the, I moved around a, a few times as a kid and ended up in a school like coming in mid-year and started experiencing some physical violence from kids in the school. 
and my parents tried to address it and uh, the school tried to address it, but no one could really get a handle on it. And this is when I was pretty young, like first grade, second grade, third sure. grade. But it was physical violence that was like severe enough that like, you know, I was like bleeding at the end of the day and at their recess and things like that. Um, and it got to the point where everyone thought that there was a pretty good handle on it by the time that I got to like third grade. And uh, then one of the kids attacked me at a school function. Uh, my parents had gotten me into judo as a way to try to like defend myself and, mm-hmm. and keep myself safe. And at the end of the you know interaction of the kid attacking me, I had broken his arm and dislocated his shoulder. And I was like eight. And the school was like, maybe this is a thing where you should just leave this school environment. Uh, and I was like, you know, so like an eight year old having to transfer schools, it was like a pretty severe thing. Yeah. And so like, I feel like bullying kind of undersells it. But at that point I had gone through, you know, years of literally kids just being able to be violent to me and assault me and not feeling that there was a way for me to get safety and not feeling like there was um, someone who cared enough or in the right way that me not having that experience uh was was enough of a problem that someone was going to address it. And one of the things that I realized in doing the anti-trafficking work is it's so important to me when I think about the folks who are experiencing that feeling of fear on a daily basis and experiencing that violence that have a sense of no one cares enough to intervene. Like this is a clear problem. Someone could step in. The community could do something um, that I feel on a personal level that I have a responsibility to say, what can I do? And like, how much can I do to give every chance to someone who might be in harm's way to say, someone does care about you. You do deserve safety. You do deserve to be able to live without fear. And we're gonna try to bring every resource we can to bear so that we have more and more success um, and more and more feelings of like happiness and joy for you. and being able to see all the success stories coming out of the work of Seattle Against Slavery and Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking gives me that feeling. And so, you know, life path-wise, I think that that's probably where it started. I was not particularly conscious of that as I was like sure. doing social change work. Um, but I find more and more that I can think about those feelings that I have and the, the connections to the, mm-hmm. you know, the trauma that I was experiencing and the way that I um, conceive of the experience of a trafficking survivor. And it motivates me and it makes it seem like whatever arguments people will get in, whatever challenges there might be in this work, um, that's worth it because I would want, I would have wanted someone to have it be worth it to them to help keep me safe when I was a kid. Thank you for sharing. That's, sure. um, um, that's an incredible story. Um, uh, something I, I meant to ask earlier, uh, keeping things topical. I, I remember last year, um, around the time we were doing uh, podcast recordings for FedCat, uh, um, online trafficking was a huge topic, both you know legislatively and in in the community. Um, and one of the concerns at the time is like, well, if like say Backpage.com gets shuttered, that's just going to push things back out onto the street and creates other safety concerns. Um, I was wondering if you could speak on maybe like the state of online trafficking and perhaps where we are today. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so 
about a year ago, um, Backpage.com, which was the largest forum for online prostitution and sex trafficking, um, there was a big federal uh, investigation and set of indictments. It was coordinated with a few other states. Um, and the website was shut down because they pled guilty to felony human trafficking, which was a crazy thing. Like, I've seen lots of companies that do stuff wrong, and sometimes yeah. the officials of the company, like, get in trouble. For, but this is sort of a shocking thing. It'd be like if a company was like, you know, we killed people, or we mur- like the company itself was like, yeah, we were engaged in a system to, to traffic people and, and profit off of trafficking them. Uh, so they pled guilty to felony human trafficking. And I think the reason that they did that is that the CEO of the company was hoping if he was very forthright about what they had done and, you know, had all this evidence, that he would get less personal jail time. And so they shorted the company. There were a bunch of websites connected to Backpage that went down. And the question was, do you let a place where people are profiting off of trafficking stay up? Because it might increase stability for some of the folks who are on that site. And I think that that, it's, I mean, it's a important ethical question and a thing mm-hmm. to grapple with. I would say no, you know, like, like if there's a person who's like, okay, and to draw the parallel again, you have a person who's a domestic abuser, you know, like a spouse who's abusing someone and arresting that person who is assaulting their family members over and over again, may make their lives unstable and that may not be you know the first desire of, to have that instability i would say that the solution there is stop that person from doing violence and provide safety and stability to the people who are going to be negatively impacted by that arrest um, and i think that that was a bit of the response here in seattle and king county um, we were involved in expanding outreach to people who were online and backpage so seattle against slavery has a, a technology uh, set of services we call Mm -hmm. Freedom Signal um, that includes the ability for service providers to send text messages to reach out to people online in prostitution who are uh, potential trafficking victims. And so what we said was we saw this coming, we knew about the investigations, that we really needed to ramp up how much was available in services. And what we saw was about a 250% increase in people responding to those outreach messages when Backpage went down. So it was definitely destabilizing of the mm-hmm. commercial sex market. I think one of the hard parts about that is, yes, the reality in that moment was that people were you know, experiencing instability. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't an unpredictable or new instability. That was part of the reason why those people were in prostitution or in a trafficking situation in the first place. So someone was like, yes, I'm very economically stable. I have lots of options. I feel like I can go anywhere. So think, I'm just thinking the, the most advantaged people in our community, like have access to education and resources and things sure, like that. Sure, of course. Those aren't the folks who typically are like, I need prostitution to not be homeless. You know, you have people who are experiencing other types of instability mm-hmm. who say it's backpage or I'm going to be homeless. That's a social problem that we should be addressing for a bunch of other reasons. Like no one should be in a situation if they're not being trafficked where them or their kids aren't housed or can't eat unless their body is available sexually to men who want to buy sex. So that's a whole other thing and mm-hmm. we need to expand services and Seattle against slavery has worked tirelessly to get those services expanded, which is great, you know, additional housing resources, additional job training, additional educational resources for folks who might be in that situation of instability. At the same time, what we saw was that the amount of people um, 
sex buyers going to sites related to commercial sex did reduce dramatically. And the sort of amount of unique phone numbers and unique ads spread across where the internet was did decrease dramatically. Now, there's still a bunch of money to be made in this world. And so Mm -hmm. traffickers continue to find new places to exploit people and new platforms. Um, People who were, you know, transitioned from online prostitution to street prostitution, um, you know, we had a goal of reaching out to every single phone number that was on Backpage in mm-hmm. King County, and we did. Um, and it led to literally 700 people connecting with service providers in 2018. So it's, it's a massive number. So they at least were having that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them got some type of services. Sure. Some of them were like, okay, you know, again, like th- there's so many parallels with Uh, domestic violence, but I'm in this situation now, but I want to build up my safety and security so that I can transition out because Mm -hmm. I see it as unstable and it's harming me and things like that. And we're seeing that with Organization for Prostitution Survivors and Real Escape from the Sex Trade, working with lots of folks who are in prostitution and transitioning out, but can't be out of it immediately. But we also saw a huge number of trafficking victims who, with that instability, that was a crisis point that either their pimps and traffickers got more violent or they just Mm -hmm. saw that this was going to continue to be uh, such a dangerous and volatile situation that they were going to reach out to the lifelines that were being made available. And so many people got into housing and many people got connected to services who, you know, by their own accounts were experiencing violence on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And now they're not. And to me, that's great. So it's an ongoing challenge. I think, you know, this goes back to some of the root cause things no one should have to be making these choices uh, of being in a trafficking situation or being homeless, being in a trafficking situation or not having food to eat. We need to do a better job as a community to give people different options and better you know, options for, for safety and security. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, we can't just let the like, sort of market drive like, oh, well, it'll figure it out and people can find jobs and, and that'll be great because we have a legacy that that hasn't worked out and it's been to the advantage of some people to to tilt the you know the the deck in their favor sure. and so um i think that we we're not seeing the end of online sex trafficking with our technology world we all the time see people trying to buy sex from kids online you know trying to recruit people for trafficking online um we work with partners all over the country, and so we see that it's not a thing that's just happening in Seattle or King County. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're developing new support and techniques, and we're really like evolving the same way that we did with sexual assault and domestic mm-hmm. violence to a place where people have much more viable options for safety and security. And once we really dial those options in, I think that it'll be much less likely that people will be having to to make the choice right. between trafficking and uh, insecurity on the scale that they are now. Mm-hmm. It may be a thing that's always a problem in online. Sex trafficking may always be a problem, um, but we can get it down to a much lower level, a much more unique and rare problem than what we see today. 
Robert, as we wrap up here, um, I I wanted to ask you about we're uh, we're recording in the uh, Seattle Against Slavery uh, offices here, and uh, from what I understand, this uh, this building has a little bit of a story, and I was wondering if you wanted to uh, talk about that before we close out. Sure, yeah, we're really lucky to be in this unique uh, collaborative workspace that um, All Saints Church has created for nonprofits in the community, basically. Um, when Seattle Against Slavery was an all-volunteer organization, we came and gave a community presentation like we do for lots of churches and schools and Rotary Clubs and Junior Leagues and things like that. And um, the folks here at the church said, you know, most of this building goes unused during the week except for Sundays. Would you want to do events here? And we said, sure, great. And before we even planned an event, they said, you know, honestly, you could just work out of one of the rooms in this building if you wanted to. And do you know any other nonprofits that would be interested in doing that? And we did. And we engaged with Organization for Prostitution Survivors and Businesses Ending Slavery and Trafficking to start working out of the, the space here at, you know, a, a tremendously generous donated uh, mm-hmm. set of space, which for nonprofits that are new is very helpful. And it was so impactful on the people who come to this church and they saw these tremendous outcomes that they said, we really want to transform this building into being a really workable space. And so they renovated the top floor of the building to make it a collaborative workspace, um, mm-hmm. we call it the work loft, um, and have a, a sort of meeting and gathering space yeah. on uh, the middle floor that they call the commons. That's really tremendous for folks coming in and using it. And now as Seattle Against Slavery and Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking have grown, we have our Seattle office up here and our Federal Way office um, in Federal Way near the commons. And we're able to you know, use this space, have people come in, record podcasts, <laughs> new thing that we haven't done here before. Um, and the folks who come into church every Sunday, they know the the type of work that's going on because of their generosity and their mm-hmm, willingness to mm-hmm. to support our work. Um, and as the you know the pastor of the church here says, like we create a church community to benefit the community and make lives for people in our community better. And so if we have a building and it can do that job, we're going to do everything we can as a church to make that happen. So. Shout out to All Saints Church and, and the work that they do supporting us. Yeah, it's it's a great space. It's uh, it's really cool. Um, so uh, finally, um, I want to ask uh, once again how folks can uh, learn more about Seattle Against Slavery, how they can learn more about Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking. Yeah, that is a mouthful. <laughs> but uh, uh, but how uh, can folks listening to this podcast connect with both uh, organizations uh, online, social media? on the internet sure so i would say the three things uh the first one which is the easiest to do but might involve doing something physically in the real world is that we have our break the chains 5k coming up on may 18th it's on a saturday morning down in Mm -hmm. federal way and it is the largest trafficking awareness event in washington uh we we did we did the math and we don't know of anyone who's doing anything that's any bigger great uh you know, uh, words from survivors, elected officials come out, lots of boosts mm-hmm. to get more information. So you can go online and sign up for that right now. If you just search Break the Chains Federal Way, um, it's easy to find on Google or Bing. Um, if you want more information about the stuff that the Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking or Seattle Against Slavery is doing, go to seattleagainstslavery.org or 
fwcap.org. Um, and then the third thing is uh, follow the social media accounts. Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking on Facebook, Seattle Against Slavery on Facebook and Instagram. We'll keep your feeds, you know, moderately full with information about things that, that people can do and ways that you can connect and volunteer and do events and share stuff. Um, we can really make a difference and keep people safer by doing pretty simple things uh, online or getting out there and, and walking to help keep survivors safe. And so I just encourage everybody, if you like the stuff that you've heard and want to get involved more, or if you want to shoot us a question and find out more about the stuff that we do, um, go online and get involved. Any uh, any particular topics that you wanted to bring up that I either didn't ask or anything in particular you wanted to cover while, uh, while we were recording here? I think one of the most straightforward and simple things that I always encourage people to think about is that there are small life changes that people can make that really do make an impact on trafficking. So, you know, in the things that we buy, if you have the choice to buy something that is, you know, from an industry where you're like, uh, I'm kind of suspect about this thing, like, you know, there was conflict diamonds and things like that, where you're like, oh, I don't want to make that decision. You know, chocolate is a great example of that or coffee or tea you know, make the slight choice, pay a dollar more, buy the fair trade one. Then you'll know for sure that nobody's being exploited and that people, um, you know, are getting a, a fair wage and not being kept vulnerable. With the sex trafficking space, have a conversation just for a minute or two about like, mm, I don't think that sex buying is such a great idea. People are in a trafficking situation. Whatever people respond and, you know, they might want to make arguments about, you know, being pro-prostitution or whatever model, you just never want to put people at risk of that. You wouldn't put people at risk of that in other areas of your life. It's, it's not like people make an argument for like drunk driving or anything like that. So I would say if you have uh, men and boys in your life and just say like, I heard this podcast, I really think it's a, you know an easy thing to avoid sex trafficking. If the, the guys you know just don't ever buy sex, they'll never buy traffic sex. And that's a great thing. And um, I think that the last thing is, um, for some folks that think that this is a big, overwhelming problem, it's one of the reasons why we create community coalitions so that people can take a bite-sized bit of work, do their part, hand the baton off to the next person. And, you know, we've been rolling for about 10 years now, and it really has saved people's lives. You know, the work that we do uh, transforms the community. So even if this is a thing that you think is big and horrible to think about, put in a little bit of work for a while, pass the baton on to the next person, you'll be part of um, really making uh, a change that can be lasting. And, you know, sort of starfish story-wise, if you're the person who throws that one starfish back in the ocean, if you're that person who puts in that little bit of time around trafficking, that could be the difference between safety and freedom and hope uh, for another person. So check in, put a little bit of work in. Robert, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Sure. Thanks. Break the Chains of Human Trafficking is a presentation of Mike Seibert Radio in conjunction with Federal Way Coalition Against Trafficking. It will take a community effort to eliminate human trafficking in our community. We invite you to join us. How can you help? Volunteer. Use your unique skills and talents to raise awareness and further the fight against human trafficking. Speak up. Use your voice to influence and strengthen legislation. Learn. Educate yourself and share your knowledge with others. Donate. Use your resources to help prevent future cases of human trafficking. For more information, including 
Registration for the Break the Chains of Human Trafficking 5K Awareness Walk happening on May 18th. Check out Federal Way CAT on Facebook or go to the website www.fwcat.org. Thank you for listening. Whatever.